Part 3, Chapter 18 For the first time since the war began, Atlanta could hear the sound of battle. In the early morning hours, before the noises of the town awoke, the cannon at Kennesaw Mountain could be heard faintly, far away, a low, dim booming that might have passed for summer thunder. Occasionally, it was loud enough to be heard even above the rattle of traffic at noon. People tried not to listen to it, tried to talk, to laugh, to carry on their business, just as though the Yankees were not there, 22 miles away, but always ears were strained for the sound. The town wore a preoccupied look, for no matter what occupied their hands, all were listening, listening, their hearts leaping suddenly a hundred times a day. Was the booming louder, or did they only think it was louder? Would General Johnston hold them this time? Would he? Panic lay just beneath the surface. Nerves, which had been stretched tighter and tighter each day of the retreat, began to reach the breaking point. No one spoke of fears. That subject was taboo. But strained nerves found expression in loud criticism of the general. Public feeling was at fever heat. Sherman was at the very doors of Atlanta. Another retreat might bring the Confederates into the town. Give us a general who won't retreat. Give us a man who will fight and stand and fight. With the far off rumbling of cannon in their ears, the state militia, Joe Brown's pets, and the home guard marched out of Atlanta to defend the bridges and ferries of the Catahoochee River at Johnston's back. It was a gray, overcast day, and as they marched through Five Points and out the Marietta Road, a fine rain began to fall. The whole town had turned out to see them off, and they stood close-packed under the wooden awnings of the stores on Peachtree Street and tried to cheer. <coughs> oh, well. Sorry. Scarlett and Maybell Merriweather Picard had been given permission to leave the hospital and watch the men go out because Uncle Henry Hamilton and Grandpa Merriweather were in the home guard. And they stood with Mrs. Mead, pressed in the crowd, tiptoeing to get a better view. Scarlet, though filled with universal southern desire to believe only the pleasantest and most reassuring things about the progress of the fighting, felt cold as she watched the motley ranks go by. Surely things must be in a desperate pass if this ramble and bomb-proofers, old men and little boys were call- being called out. To be sure, there were young and able-bodied men in the passing lines tricked out in the bright uniforms of socially select militia units, plumes waving, sashes dancing. But there were so many old men and young boys, and the sight of them made her heart contract with pity and with fear. There were graybeards, older than her father, trying to step jauntily along in the needle-fine rain to the rhythm of the fife and drum corps. Grandpa Merriweather, with Mrs. Merriweather's best plaid shawl laid across his shoulders to keep out the rain, was in the first rank, and he saluted the girls with a grin. They waved their handkerchiefs and cried gay goodbyes to him, but Mabel, gripping Scarlet's arm, whispered, Oh, the poor old darling, a real good rainstorm will just about finish him. His lumbago. Uncle Henry Hamilton marched in the rank behind Grandpa Merriweather, the collar of his young black coat turned up above about his ears, two Mexican war pistols in his belt, and a small carpet bag in his hand. Beside him marched his 
black valet who was nearly as old as Uncle Henry with an open umbrella held above them. Both shoulder to shoulder with their elders came the young boys, none of them looking over 16. Many of them had run away from school to join the army. And here and there, away from school, no wait, here and there were chumps, clumps of them in the cadet uniforms of military academies. The black cock feathers on their tight gray caps wet with rain, the clean white canvas straps crossing their chest sodden. Phil Meade was among them, proudly wearing his dead brother's saber and horse pistols, his hat bravely pinned up on one side. Mrs. Mead managed to smile and wave until he had passed, and then she leaned her head on the back of Scarlet's shoulder for a moment, as though her strength had suddenly left her. Many of the men were totally unarmed, for the Confederacy had neither rifles nor ammunition to issue to them. These men hoped to equip themselves from killed and captured Yankees. Many cried Bowie knives. Oh, Mary. Ugh. Many carried Bowie knives in their boots and bore in their hands long, thin poles with iron-pointed tips known as Joan Brown Pikes. The lucky ones had old flint-lock muskets slung over their shoulders and powder horns at their belts. Johnson had lost around 10,000 men in this his retreat. He needed 10,000 more fresh troops, and this, thought Scarlet frightened, is what he's getting. As the artillery rumbled by, splashing mud into the watching ne crowds, a negro on a mule riding close to a cannon caught her eye. He was a young, saddle-colored negro with a serious face, and when Scarlet saw him, she cried, It's Mose, Ashley's Mose. Whatever is he doing here? She thought her way, she fought her way through the crowd to the curb and called, Mose, stop! The boy, seeing her, drew, drew rein, spied delightedly, and started to dismount. A soaking sergeant riding behind him called, Stay on that mule, boy, or I'll light a fire under you. We got to get to the mountains sometime. Uncertainly, Mose looked from the sergeant to Scarlet, and she, splashing through the mud close to the passing wheels, caught at Mose's stirrup strap. Oh, just a minute, sergeant. Don't get down, Mose. What on earth are you doing here? Eyes off to the war again, Miss Scarlet. This time with old Mr. John, instead of old Mr. Ashley. Mr. Wilkes? Oh, that was said weird. Sorry. Mr. Wilkes, Scarlet was stunned. Mr. Wilkes was nearly 70. Where is he? Back with the last cannon, Miss Scarlet. Back there. Sorry, lady. Move on, boy. Scarlet stood for a moment, ankle deep in mud, as the guns lurched by. Oh, no, she thought. It can't be. He's too old. And he doesn't like war any more than Ashley did. She retreated back a few paces toward the curb and scanned each face that passed. Then, as the last cannon and lumber chest came groaning and splashing up, she saw him. Slender, erect, his long silver hair wet upon his back, his neck, riding easily upon a little strawberry maze that picked her way as daintily through the mud holes as a lady in a satin dress. Why, that mare was Nellie. Mrs. Tarleton's Nellie. Beatrice Tarleton retired darling. When he saw her standing in the mud, Mr. Wilkes drew rein with a smile of pleasure and dismounting came towards her. I had hoped to see you, Scarlet. 
I was charged with no so many messages from your people, but then was no time. We just got in this morning. They were rushing us out immediately, as you see. Oh, Mr. Wilkes, she cried desperately, holding his hand. Don't go. Why must you go? Ah, so you think I'm too old, he smiled. And it was Ashley's smile and an older face. Perhaps I am too old to march, but not to hide and shoot. And Mrs. Tarleton so kindly let me, Nellie, so I am well mounted. I hope nothing happened to Nell. Nothing happens to Nellie, for if something should happen to her, I could never go home and face Mrs. Tarleton. Nellie was the last horse she had left. He was laughing now, turning away her fears. Your mother and father and the girls are well, and they sent you their love. Your father nearly came up with us today. Oh, not Pa! cried Scarlet in terror. Not Pa! He isn't going to the war, is he? No, but he was, of course. He can't walk for far with his stiff knee. But he was all for ratting away with us. Your mother agreed, providing he was able to jump the pasture fence for, she said. There'd be a lot of rough riding to the to be done in the army. Your father thought that easy, but would you believe it? When his horse came to the fence, he stopped dead, and over his head went your father. It was It's a wonder he didn't break his neck. You know how obstinate he is. He got right up and tried it again. Well, Scarlet, he came off three times before Mrs. O'Hara and Pork assisted him to bed. He was in a taken about it, swearing that your mother had spoken a wee word to the beast there. He just isn't up to active service, Scarlet. You need, you need have no shame about it. After all, someone must stay home and raise corpse, crops for the army. Scarlet had no shame at all, only an active feeling of relief. I've sent Miss, I've sent Indian Honey to Malkin to stay with the bears, and Mister O'Hara is looking after twelve elks as well as Tar. I must go, my dear. Let me kiss your pretty face. Scarlet turned up her lips, and there was a choking pain in her throat. She was so fond of Mr. Wilkes. Once, long ago, she had hoped to be his daughter-in-law. And you must deliver the kiss to Miss Patty, Miss Pittypat and this to Melanie, he said, kissing her lightly two more times. And how is Melanie? She is well. Ah, his eyes looked at her, but through her, past her, as Ashley's had done, Remote gray eyes looking on another world. I should have liked to see my first grandchild. Goodbye, my dear. He swung onto Nellie and cantered off, his hat in his hand, his silver hair bare to to the rain. Scarlet had rejoined Mabel and Mrs. Mead before the import of his last words broke upon her. Then, in superstitious terror, she crossed herself and tried to say a prayer. He had spoken of death, just as Ashley had done, and now Ash. No, n- no one should ever speak of death. It was tempting Providence to mention death. As the three women started silently back to the hospital in the rain, Scarlet was praying, not him too, God, not him, n- and Ashley too. The retreat from Downton to Kennes- Kennesaw Mountain had taken from early May to mid-June. And as the hot, rainy days of June passed and Sherman failed to dislodge the Confederates from the steep, slippery slopes, hope again raised its head. Everyone grew more cheerful and spoke more kindly of General Johnston. 
as wet June days passed into a wetter July and the Confederates fighting desperately around the entrenched heights still held Sherman at bay. A wild gaiety took hold of Atlanta. Hope went to their heads like champagne. Hurrah! Hurrah! We're holding them! An epidemic of parties and dances broke out. Whenever groups of men from the fighting were in town for the night, diners were given for them. Oh, not diners. That's weird. Dinners were given for them. And afterwards, there was dancing and the girls outnumbering the men ten to one. Maybe much of them and fought to dance with them. Atlanta were was crowded with visitors, refugees, families of wounded men in the hospitals, wives, and mothers of soldiers fighting in the mountains who wished to be near them in case of wounds. In addition, bevies of bellies of bells from the country districts were all remaining men wait. In addition, bevies of bells from the country districts where all remaining men were under sixteen or over 60, descended upon the town. That's a weird sentence. Okay. Aunt Petty disapproved highly of these last, for she felt they had come to Atlanta for no reason at all, except to catch husbands, and the shamelessness of it made her wonder what the world was coming to. Scarlet disapproved, too. She did not care for the eager competition furnished by the 16-year-olds whose fresh cheeks and bright smiles made one forget their twice-turned frocks and patched shoes. Her own clothes were prettier and newer than most, thanks to the material Rhett Butler had brought her on the last boat he had ran in. But after all, she was 19 and getting along, and men had a way of chasing silly young things. A widow with a child was at a disadvantage with them pretty mix, mixins, mixes, she thought. But in these exciting days, her widowhood and her motherhood weighed less heavily upon her than ever before. Between hospital duties in the daytime and parties at night, she hardly ever saw Wade. Sometimes she actually forgot for long stretches that she had a child, which is what we did in this book. Anyway. In the warm and summer nights, Atlanta's homes stood open to the soldiers, the town's defenders. The big houses from Washington Street to Peachtree Street blazed with lights as the muddy fighters and from the rifle pits were entertained, and the sound of banjo and fiddle and the scrap of dancing feet and light laughter carried for far on the night air. Groups hung over pianos and voices sang, Lustily, the sad words of your letter came, but came too late, while rag gallants looked meaningly at girls who laughed from behind turkey tail fans, begging them not to wait until it was too late. None of the girls waited if they could help it. With the tide of hysterical gaiety and excitement flooding the city, they rushed into matrimony. There were so many marriages that month while Johnston was holding the enemy at Kennesaw. Mountain marriages with the bride turned out in blushing happiness, and the hastily borrowed finery of a dozen friends and the groom with saber banging at patched knees. So much excitement, so many parties, so many thrills. Hurrah! Johnson is holding the Yanks twenty two miles away.
Yes, the lines around Kennesaw Mountain were impressive. Uh, impregnable. After 25 days of fighting, even General Sherman was convinced of this, for his losses were enormous. Instead of continuing the direct assault, he swung his army in a wide circle again, trying to come between the Confederates and Atlanta. Again, the strategy worked. Johnston was forced to abandon the heights he had held so well in order to protect his rear. He had lost a third of his men in the fight, and the remainder slogged tiredly through the rain across the country toward the Chattahoochee River. The Confederates could expect no more reinforcements, whereas the railroad, which the Yankees now held from Tennessee south to the battle line, brought Sherman fresh troops and supplies daily. So the gray lines went back through the muddy fields back towards Atlanta. With the loss of the supposedly unconquerable position, a fresh wave of terror swept the town. For 25 wild, happy days, everyone had assured everyone else that this could not possibly happen. And now it had happened. But surely the general would hold the Yankees on the opposite bank of the river, though God knows the river was close enough, only seven miles away. But Sherman flanked them again, crossing the stream above them, and the weary gray flies were forced, or gray gave files, were forced to hurry across the yellow water and throw themselves again between the invaders and the Atlanta. They dug in hastily in shallow pits in the north of the town in the valley of Peachtree Creek. Atlanta was in agony and panic. Fight and fall back, fight and fall back. And every retreat was beginning, bringing the Yankees closer to the town. Peachtree Creek was only five miles away. What was the general thinking about? The cries of, give us a man who will stand and fight, penetrated even to Richmond. Richmond knew that if Atlanta were lost, the war was lost. And after the army had crossed the Chattahoochee, General Johnston was removed from command. General Hood, one of the corps commanders, took over the army, and the town breathed a little easier. Hood wouldn't retreat, not that tall Ken- Kentuckian with his flowing beard and flashing eye. He had the reputation of a bulldog. He'd drive the Yankees back from the creek, yes, back across the river and on on up the road every stop of the way back to Dalton. But the army cried, give us back old Joe, for they had been with old Joe all the very wi- miles from Dalton. And they knew, as the civilians could not know, the odds that had opposed them. Sherman did not wait for Hood to get himself in readiness to attack. On the day after the change of command, the Yankee general struck swiftly at the little town of Decanter, six miles beyond Atlanta, captured it, and cut the railroad there. This was a railroad connecting Atlanta with Augusta, with Charlton and Wilmington, and with Virginia. Sherman had dealt the Confederacy a crippling blow. The time had come for action. Atlanta screamed for action. Then on a July afternoon of steaming heat, Atlanta had its wish. General Hood did more than stand and fight. He assaulted the Yankees fiercely at Peachtree Creek, hurling his men from his their rifle pits across against the blue lines where Sherman's men outnumbered him more than two to one. Frightened, praying that Hood's attack would drive the Yankees back 
Everyone listened to the sound of booming cannon and the crackling of the thousands of rifles, which, though five miles away from the center of town, were so loud as to seem almost in the next block. They could hear the rumblings of the batteries, see the smoke, which rolled like low-hanging clouds above the trees. But for hours, no one knew how the battle was going. By late afternoon, the first news came, but it was uncertain, contradictory, frightening, brought as it were by men wounded in the early hours of the battle. These men began struggling, straggling in, singly and in groups, and the less seriously wounded supporting those who limped and staggered. Soon a steady stream of them was established, sinking their painful ways into towns, into town toward the hospitals, their faces black as Negroes from powder stains, dust and sweat, their wounds unbandaged, blood drying, flies swarming about them. Um, Pity's was one of the first homes which the wounded reached as they struggled in from the north to the town, and one after another they tottered to the gate, sank down the green lawn, and croaked, Water! All that burning afternoon, Aunt Pity and her family, black and white, stood in the sun with buckets of water and bandages, littling drinks, binding wounds until the bandages gave out and even the torn sheets and towels were exhausted. Aunt Pity completely forgot that the sight of blood always made her faint, and she worked until her little feet in their two small shoes smiled and would no longer support her. Even Melanie, now great with child, forgot her modesty and worked feverishly side by side with Prissy, Cookie, and Scarlet, her face as tense as any of the wounded. When at last she fainted, there was no place to lay her except on the kitchen table, as every bed, chair, and sofa in the house was filled with wounded. Forgotten in the turmoil, little Wade crouched behind the panisters of the front porch, peering out into the lawn with a cage, like a caged frightened rabbit, his eyes wide with terror, suckling his thumb and hiccuping. One Scarlet saw him and cried sharply, Go play in the backyard, Wade Hamilton. But he was too terrified, too fascinated by the mad scene before him to obey. The laws was covered with prostrate pros, men, too tired to walk further, too weak from moons to move. Uncle Peter loaded into the carriage and drove them to the hospital, making trip after trip, until the old house was lay, was lathered. Old horse was lathered. Mrs. Smead and Mrs. Merrill sent their carriages, and they too drove off, springs sagging beneath the weight of the wounded. Later in the long, hot summer twilight, the ambulances came rumbling down the road above the battlefield, and commissary wagons covered with muddy canvas. Then farm wagons, ox carts, and even private carriages commanded by the medical corps. They passed on Pity's house, jolting over the bumpy road, packed with wounded and dying men, dripping blood onto the red dust. At the sight of the women with buckets and diapers, the conveyances halted, and the chorus went up in cries and whispers, Water! Scarlet held wobbling hands that parched lips might drink, poured buckets of water over dusty, feverish bodies and into open wounds that the men might enjoy a brief moment's relief. 
she tiptoed to hand dippers to ambulance drivers and of each she questioned her heart in her throat what's new what's news from all came back the answer don't know for certain lady it's too soon to tell night came and it was sultry no air moved in the flaring pine knots the negroes held made the air hotter dust clogged scarlet nostrils and dried her lips her lavender calico dress, so freshly clean and stretched, that morning was streaked with blood, dirt, and sweat. This, then, was what Ashley had meant when he wrote that war was not glor- glory but dirt and misery. Fatigue gave an unreal and nightmarish cast to the whole scene. It couldn't be real, or it was real. Then the world had gone mad. If not, why should she be standing here in Aunt Pity's peaceful front yard, amid wavering lights pouring water over dying bows, for so many of them were her bow and they tried to smile when they saw her there were so many men jolting down this dark dusty road whom she knew so well so many men dying here before her eyes mosquitoes and gnats swarming the bloody faces men with whom she had danced and laughed for whom she had played music and sing songs teased comforted loved a little she found Carrie Ashburn on the bottom layer of wounded in an ox cot, barely alive from the bullet wound in his bra- in his head, but she could not attri- extricate him without distrib- disturbing six other wounded men, so she let him go on to the hospital. Later, she heard he had died before Dr. Arbor saw him and was buried somewhere no one knew exactly. So many men had been buried that month in shallow, hastily dug graves at Elkland Cemetery. Melanie felt it keenly that they had not been able to get a look lock of Carrie's hair to send to his mother in to in the land, ha, to his mother in Alabama. As the hot night wore on and their backs were aching and their knees buckling for weariness, Scarlet and Pity cried to men after men, What news? What news? And as the long hours dragged past, they had their answer, an answer that made them look whitely into each other's eyes. We're falling back. We've got to fall back. They outnumber us by thousands. The Yankees have got Wheeler's cavalry out off near Decanta. We got to reinforce them. Our boys will all be in town soon. Scarlet and Pity clutched each other's arms for support. Are are the Yankees coming? Yes, um, they're coming. All, all right, but they ain't going to get to get far, lady. Don't fret, miss. They can't take Atlanta. No, ma'am. We got a million miles of breastworks bound this town. I heard old Joe say it myself. I can hold Atlanta forever. But we ain't got old Joe. We got... Shut up, you fool. Do you want to scare the ladies? The Yankees will never take this place, ma'am. Why'd you ladies go to Macon or something somewhere that's safer? Ain't you got no kinfolks there? The Yankees got nothing. Ain't going to take Atlanta, but still it ain't going to be so healthy for ladies whilst they're trying to... There's going to be a powerful lot of shelling. In a warm, steaming rain the next day, 
the defeated army poured through Atlanta by thousands, exhausted by hunger and weariness, depicted in by 76 days of battle and retreat. Their horses starved, scarecrows, their cannon and caissons harnessed with odds and ends of rope and strips of rare hide. But they did not come in as disorderly rabbi, rab, rabble, <laughs> Woo. in full trot. They marched in good order, jaunting for all their rags, their torn and battle flags flying in the rain. They had learning retreating under old. They have learned retreating under old Joe, who had made it as great a feat of strategy as advancing. The bearded, shabby, fly. Files swung down Peachtree Street to the bearded shabby. Whoa, whoa, whoa! To the tune of Maryland, my Maryland, and all the town turned out to cheer them. In victory or defeat, they were their boys. The same militia who had gone out so short a time before were pleasant. We pleasant in new uniforms could hardly be distinguished from the seasoned troops so dirty and unkept years were they there were new looks in their eyes there was a new look in their eyes three years of apologizing of explaining they why they were not at the front was behind them now they had traded security behind the lines for the hardships of battle many of their number had traded easy living for hard death they were veterans now, veterans of brief service, so veterans just the same, and they had acquitted themselves well. They searched out the faces of friends in the crowd and stared at them proudly, defiantly. They could hold up their heads now. The old men and boys of the home guard marched by, the gray beards almost too weary to lift their feet, the boys wearing the faces of tired children confronted too early with adult problems. Scarlet caught sight of Phil Meade and hardly recognized him. So black was his face with powder and grime, so taut it with strange and strain and weariness. Uncle Henry went limping by, hatless in the rain. His head struck through a hole in a piece of old oilcloth. Grandpa Merriweather rode in on a gun carriage, his bare feet tied in quilt scraps, but searched through Though she might, she saw no sign of John Wilkes. Johnson's veterans, however, went by with a tireless, careless step, which had carried them for three years, and they still had the energy to grin and wave at pretty girls and to call rude gapes to men not in uniform. They were on their way to the entrenchments that ringed the town. No shallow, hastily dug trenches, these but earthworks, breast high, reinforced with sandbags and tipped with sharpened staves of wood. For mile after mile, the trenches encircled the town, red gashes surrounded by red mounds, waiting for the men who would f fill them. The crowd cheered the troops as they would have cheered them in victory. There was fear in every heart, but now that they knew the truth, now that the worst had happened, now that the war was in their front yard, a change came over the town. There was no panic now, no hysteria. Whatever lay in hearts did not show on faces. Everyone looked cheerful, even if the cheer was strained. Everyone tried to show brave, confident faces to the troops. Everyone repeated what old Joe had said just before he was relieved of command. I can hold Atlanta forever.
Now that Hood had had to retreat, quite a number wished with the soldiers that they had old Joe back, but they forbore saying it and took courage from old Joe's remark. I can hold Atlanta forever. Now for Hood, the conscious tactics of General Johnson. He assaulted the Yankees on the east. He assaulted them on the west. Sherman was circling the town with like a wrestler seeking a fresh hold in the opponent's body, and Hood did not remain behind his rifle pits, waiting for the Yankee on the attack. He went out boldly to meet them and savagely fell upon them. Within the space of a few days, the battles of Atlanta and of Ezra Church were fought, and both of them were major engagements which made Peachtree Creek seem like a skirmish. But the Yankees kept coming back for more. They had suffered heavy losses, but they could afford to lose. And all the while, their batteries poured shells into Atlanta, killing people in their homes, ripping hoofs off buildings, tearing huge craters in the streets. The townsfolk sheltered as best they could in cellars and holes in the ground, and the shallow tunnels dug in railroad cuts. Atlanta was under siege. Within 11 days after he had taken command, General Hood had lost almost as many men as Johnson had lost in 74 days of battle and retreat, and Atlanta was hemmed in on, in on three sides. The railroad from Atlanta to Tennessee was now in Sherman's hands for its full length. His army was across the railroad to the east, and he had cut the railroad running southwest to Alabama. Only the one railroad to the south to Macon and Savannah was still open. The town was crowded with soldiers, swamped with wounded, jammed with refugees, and this one line was inadequate for the crying needs of the stricken city. But as long as the railroad could be held, Atlanta could still stand. Scarlet was terrified when she realized how important this line had become, how fiercely Sherman would fight to take it, how desperately Hood would fight to defend it, for this was a railroad which was ran through the country through Jonesboro, and Tar was only five miles from Jonesboro. Tar seemed like a haven of refuge by comparison with the streaming, screaming hell of Atlanta, but Tar was only five miles from Jonesboro. Scarlet and many other ladies sat on the flat roofs of stores, shaded by their tiny parasols, and watched the fighting on the day of the Battle of Atlanta. But when shells began falling on the streets for the first time, they fled to the cellars, and that night the exodus of women, children, and old people from the city began. Macon was their destination, and many of those who took the train that night had already refused five and six times before as John Johnston fell back from Danson. They were traveling lighter now than when they arrived in Atlanta. Most of them carried only a carpet bag and scanty lunch done up in a bandana handkerchief. Here and there, frightened servants carried silver pitchers, knives, and forks in a family portrait or two which had been salvaged in the first fight. Mrs. Merriweather and Mrs. Elsing refused to leave. They were needed at the hospital, and furthermore, they said proudly, they were afraid that no Yankees were going to hunt them out of their home. But Maybelle and her baby and Fanny Elsing went to Macon. Mrs. Meade was disobedient for the first time in her married life and flatly refused to yield to the doctor's command that she take the train to safety. Sorry. The doctor needed her, she said. Moreover, 
Phil was somewhere in the trenches, and she wanted to be nearby in case. But Mrs. Winton went, and many other ladies, a scarlet circle. Aunt Pity, who had been the first to denounce old Joe from his, for his policy of retreat, was among the first to pack her trunks. Her nerves, she said, were delicate, and she could not endure noises. She feared she might faint at the explosion and not be able to reach the cellar. No, she was not afraid. Her baby mouth tried to set the martial lines but failed. She'd go to Macon and stay with her cousin, old Mrs. Barr, Burr, and the girls should come with her. Scarlet did not want to go to Macon. Frightened as she was of the shells, she'd rather stay in Atlanta than go to Macon, for she hated old Mrs. Burr cordially. cordially. <laughs> Years ago, Mrs. Burr had said she was fast, and after catching her kissing her son Willie at one of the Wilkes house parties, no, she told Aunt Pity, I'll go home to Tara, and Melly can go to Macon with you. At, the, at this, Melanie began to cry in a frightened, heartbroken way. When Aunt Pity fled to get Dr. Mead, Melanie caught Scarlet's hand in hers, pleading, Dear, don't go to Tara and leave me. I'll be so lonely without you. Oh, Scarlet, I'd just die if you went with me. When the baby came, yes, yes, I know, I've got Aunt Pity and she's sweet. But after all, she's never had a baby, and sometimes she makes me so nervous I could scream. Don't desert me, darling. You've been just like a sister to me, and besides, she smiled warmly, you promised Ashley you'd take care of me. He told me he was going to task you. Scarlet stared down at her in wonderment. With her own dislike of this woman so strong, she could barely conceal it. How could Mellie love her so much? How could Mellie be so stupid as to rest the secret of her love of Ashley? As to not guess the secret of her love of Ashley? She had given herself away a hundred times during these months of torment, waiting for news of him, but Melanie saw nothing. Melanie, who could see nothing but good in anyone she loved. Yes, she had promised. Ashley, she would look out for Melanie. Oh, Ashley, Ashley, you must be dead. Dead these many months, and now your promise reaches out and clutches me. Well, she said shortly, I did promise him that and i don't go back on my promises but i won't go to macon and stay with that old bear cat i claw her eyes out in five minutes i'm going home to tara and you can come with me mother would love to have you oh i'd like that your mother is so sweet but you know auntie would just die if she wasn't with me when the baby came and i know she won't go to tara it's too close to the fighting, and Auntie wants to be safe. Dr. Mead, who had arrived out of breath, expecting to find Melanie in premature labor at least, judging by Aunt Pity's alarmed summoning, was indignant and said as much. And upon learning the cause of the upset, he settled the matter with words that left no room for argument. It's out of the question for you to go to Macon, Miss Melanie. I won't an answer for you if you move. The train's are crowded and uncertain and the passengers aren't liable to be put off in the woods at any time if the trains are needed for the wounded or troops and supplies in your condition but if i went to tar with scarlet i tell you i won't have you moved the train to tara is a train to macon and the same conditions prevail moreover no one knows just where the yankees are now but they are all over everywhere 
Your train might even be captured. And even if you reached Jonesboro safely, there'd be a five-mile ride over a rough road before you ever reached Har. It's no trip for the woman in delicate condition. Besides, there's not a doctor in the county since Dr. Mafrain joined in the army. But there are midwives. I said a doctor, he answered brusquely, brusquely, and his eyes unconsciously went over her tiny frame. I won't have you moved. It might be dangerous. You don't want to have the baby on the train or in the buggy, do you? The medical frankness reduced the ladies to embarrassment, blushes, and silence. You've got to... You got to stay right here where I can watch you, and you must stay in bed. No runner up and downstairs to cellars. No, not even if shells came right in the window. After all, there's not so much danger here. We'll have the Yankees beaten back in no time. Now, Miss Pity, you go right on to Macon and leave the young ladies here. Unchaperoned? She cried, aghast. They are matrons, the doctor asked said the doctor chestily, and Mrs. Maid is just two houses away. They won't be receiving any male company anyway with Miss Melanie or condition. God heavens, Miss Petty, this is wartime. We can't think of the proprieties now. We must think of Miss Melanie. He stamped out the room and waited on the front porch until Scarlet joined him. I shall talk frankly to you, Miss Scarlet. He began jerking at his gray beard. You seem to be a young woman of common sense, so spare me your blushes. I do not want to hear any further talk about Miss Millie being moved. I doubt if she could stand the trip, she is going to have a difficult time. Even at the best of circumstances, very narrow in the hips, as you know, and probably will need forceps in her delivery. So I don't want any ignorant, darky midwife meddling with her. Women like her should never have children, but... Anyway, you pack Miss Petty's trunk and send her to Megan. She's so scared she'll upset Miss Belly, and that won't do any good. And now, Miss... He fixed her with a piercing glance. I don't want to hear about you going home either. You stay with Miss Belly until the baby comes. Not afraid, are you? Oh, no. Lights Scarlet stealthily. That's a brave girl. Mrs. Mead will give you whatever chaperonage you need, and I'll send over old Betsy to cook for you. If Miss Pity wants to take her servants with her, it won't be for long. The baby ought to be here in another five weeks. But you never can tell with first babies and all this shilling going on. They may come in days. So Aunt Pity Pat went to Macon in floods of tears, taking Uncle Peter and Cookie with her. The carriage and home horse was donated to the hospital in a burst of patriotism, which she immediately regretted, and that brought on more tears. And Scarlet and Melanie were left alone with Wade and Prissy in a house that was much quieter, even though the cannon cannoning continued.